Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking to Jeffrey Dudas, who is the author of Raised Right, Fatherhood in American, uh, Modern American Conservatism. The book is published by Stanford University Press, specifically Stanford Law Books. Uh, I have the real pleasure to have uh, uh, Jeff on the phone today. Jeff, how are you doing? Doing great, Heath. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for uh, uh, sharing the book. Um, uh, thanks for your time today. Uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background so is? So I am a, an associate professor of political science at the University of Connecticut. My PhD was from the University of Washington, uh, also in political science. And I have been um, at UConn for going on 15 years now. Great. So so this book, uh, you know, so often, uh, well, books wouldn't be published if they aren't timely in some ways, but there's such interesting ways that this book is timely now, even though it covers um, a lot of history in it. And and for that reason, I thought maybe we could start our conversation by trying to place the book uh, in time. Uh, when you refer to modern American conservatism, what is the period that you're most interested in? And, and why is this the right period to focus on, knowing that, that these things can be debated? So Place us in time uh, in terms of where you did your research and, and what you think the right catch is. So when I refer to modern American conservatism, I'm really placing the beginning of the time period at the in the early 1950s, in the immediate post-World uh, War II era. And this, uh, this placement is consistent with what most historians uh, of American conservatism um, with the way in which they tend to place uh, a, a real transition point between kind of a, an older New Deal era conservatism and earlier, and this kind of um, this post-war modern conservatism um, that's that's really kicked off intellectually by William F. Buckley Jr. and uh, his collaborators on the National Review. And then moving that time period forward, moving that the, that movement forward from about the early 1950s on, um, it's an appropriate place to start. And as I try to suggest throughout the book, it's the resonances or the, the through lines between those early moments uh, with Buckley and his collaborators uh, really do carry through up to the contemporary moment. Now, you describe in the book the one of the unifying themes of American conservatism as paternal rights. Uh, this isn't what most people um, would would first think of, though. I, I I think you make such an interesting, compelling case. What do you mean by this exactly? What do you What do you mean by paternal rights, and and why are they uh, so significant? We'll get into some of the chapters and some of the very specific. Uh, people who you, you work on. But but let's talk sort of from that perspective on uh, on uh, paternal rights. Right. So my, my abiding interest in getting the project started was in recognizing, along with so many other scholars of American conservatism, that it 
it is on its face such a kind of a motley configuration of interests uh, and constituencies, people who in a lot of ways seem to not have anything at all in common with one another. Um, and yet, in spite of the what would appear to be these kinds of significant internal fissures and tensions, the movement has tended to thrive over the course of you know 70 plus years now. And so I was interested in trying to figure out what it was that these people might share in common. Um, and what I found was they all tend, in spite of their significant differences on matters of policy, on matters of proper governmental relationships with citizens, they all tend to share a very common language, a common way of speaking about the nature of political authority. And what I found is, is they all tend to voice what I call in the book this paternal rights discourse. And it's, it's a, in some ways a kind of odd and counterintuitive way of, of talking that at once conjoins reverence for fathers, both historical fathers and contemporary biological fathers, and reverence for individual rights. And to speak of rights individual rights, I should say, as really the, the provenance, as, as really the, the sort of thing that we were gifted um, by the work of, of fathers. Um, and so what I find is that it's, it's this way of, of thinking and this way of talking and justifying authority that is really widely shared by this otherwise motley crew of, uh, motley group, I should say, um, of, of interests and constituents. As the cover of the book shows, uh, the book is structured around these three important figures, uh, Buckley, Reagan, and Clarence Thomas. And, and let's, let's start with the chapter about the National Review's William Buckley. Uh, Buckley is often referred to as the father of American conservatism, much to the point of the book. Um, but you focus uh, this chapter in part on his fiction writer, um, the so-called Blackford Oaks novels. Uh, would you tell us about these books that that probably for most people are are a surprise, um, if not eye opening, and and what they say about Buckley's worldview and and his view of fatherhood? Sure. So the the Blackford Oaks spy novels were a a series of of eleven novels eventually that Buckley really wrote over the last portion of his life. He the first one uh, is entitled Saving the Queen, and it was written predominantly in 1975, so well after Buckley was already a, a very well established intellectual and and political figure um, in American politics, and um, he he came. He came eventually to regard this series of spy novels as really one of the crowning achievements of his intellectual product and output. And while I, I think that, that you're correct in saying that it's, it's a, a, these days a, a not a very well-known series, it was a surprisingly popular series uh, in its time. Um, one of the reasons I think that it probably is not very well known is that to Buckley's everlasting chagrin, he never could get Hollywood producers and writers interested in converting the novels into movies. Um, so while they, I, I think, have, have kind of been lost somewhat in the mists of time, they were quite prominent uh, 
at least as literary products in their day. And certainly Buckley always thought of them as great accomplishments. Um, the, the novels themselves are uh, of varying quality, I suppose. Um, the first couple were both quite well received, both by critics and by a popular audience. Both of the first two novels, in fact, spent significant amount significant amounts of time, I should say, on the New York Times bestsellers list and garnered, you know, fairly significantly um, good reviews. Um, and then, as the series went on, it, it sort of you know, became less and less commercially and, and critically attractive. But the the novels tell the story of uh, this CIA agent, this covert CIA agent named Blackford Oaks. And Buckley modeled Oakes after his own life experiences, um, but he also in, invested Oakes with uh, certainly the physical properties that, that Buckley himself did not have. Um, so he characterized Oakes consistently as this, quote, startlingly, startlingly handsome uh, American hero, and he borrows that verbiage from um, from Herman Melville's characterization of Billy Budd. And in fact, Buckley had said he modeled um, Blackford Oaks in his mind after Robert Redford. Uh, and so obviously anybody who's seen the picture of William F. Buckley knows that he was uh, he bore almost no resemblance to Robert Redford. So physically, uh, it, it is, in fact, a work, significant work of fiction. But uh, with regard to the life experiences of Oaks, um, there, it's it's in many ways a thinly veiled biography of Buckley's own life uh, himself, and so I, in the book, I spend a long time sort of going through the trajectory of these novels, and what I find is that, in spite of the fact that these are fictional novels and they are not obvious commentaries on the politics of the day as the vast majority of all of his other voluminous writings were, the novels are actually in many ways the the most crystalline and the finest and the most clear uh, enunciations of the kind of figure, the kind of heroic figure that Buckley considered to be, uh, you know, the modal American subject. Um, and so if you want to understand, my argument is if you want to understand really the, uh, the emotional connection that Buckley has to the American nation and the, to the idea of American citizenship, the best place to go is, is to these spy novels. Um, and in short, the, the sort of figure that he celebrates there is this, you know, hyper-masculine figure who engages in, in dangerous uh, escapades um, abroad in the name of American security and who, as a, as a not incidental part of his appeal, has a very strong sex appeal and is consistently engaged in, um, you know, all manner of, of, of sexual liaisons with, with other dangerous female diplomats, um, foreign nationals, other spies, and the like. And my argument is, is that his uh, is that Oakes's capacities, I suppose, uh, in the bedroom are frequently and always presented, I should say, by Buckley as just as important as the kinds of things that he does in the name of 
American security. You you move from that, and, and I figure the features features in 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 Buckley's uh, period is is Ronald Reagan, and features heavily in the book as well. Um, Reagan rises to fame in politics for taking on student protesters in California, and, and then later as president uh, his, in his actions in the foreign policy realm, especially. Um, how does Reagan fit into your thesis about fatherhood and the political right? Uh, he's, he's not writing fiction. He's, he's leading the country. So, so what, is, what is the story about Reagan? Well, like, like Buckley Jr. and like Clarence Thomas, um, Reagan's engagement with fatherhood begins personally and biographically. All three of these figures had fraught Uh, to put it mildly, fraught relationships with their own biological fathers, and yet nevertheless insisted that paternal authority and reverence for fathers was necessary for the production of mature and responsible and disciplined American citizens later in life. And so for Reagan, the the desire for strong paternal authority really begins as a as an attempt, in my argument, to overcome his own, uh, you know, the shortcomings of his own biological father, who was a, a longtime alcoholic and was very unstable, and uh, presence who was someone that that Reagan was ashamed of, that who Reagan always tried to escape his influence and in his shadow, uh, and yet. Reagan always still believed that the presence of strong paternal authority and influence was absolutely vital for the conduct of virtuous American citizenship. And so he was consistently looking to replace the, the, the lost influence of his own biological father with these kinds of surrogate fathers. Um, Sometimes the surrogate fathers were people in his real life, um, mentors who he had run across as he sort of worked his way up through the entertainment world into the political world. Sometimes, and eventually, I I argue, as he became more entrenched in in American politics, the surrogate fathers who were really important to him were the nation's mythical founding fathers um, who considered, he argued, who bequeathed. Um, to American citizens, this legacy of rights, of individual rights and, and freedom, and who, according to Reagan, offered a kind of template for how to live virtuous lives. Um, and so for Reagan, whenever he imagined his political rivals or uh, people that he might consider to be political threats or enemies, such as student protesters at Berkeley when he was governor of California in the late 1960s, he tended to interpret their political activism according to this rubric of whether they had been properly parented and turned into uh, virtuous American citizens or whether they had somehow had a kind of a deficient upbringing, which had led them to behave in ways that were irresponsible, that were ungrateful to their elders, um, and that were eventually dangerous to the American nation. Um, So for Reagan, the the theme of fatherhood is this kind of ever-present theme that articulates both with his own personal biological um, experience and 
serves as, I argue, the, the hinge or the major transition point uh, in his career in politics. Now, you argue later in the book uh, that uh, Justice Clarence Thomas' view of the Constitution and, and rights is, is very much shaped by his view of the home and family. Uh, what is this relationship between um, uh, conservative jurisprudence and, and sort of the name of Clarence Thomas and the central thesis of your book? Right. So, you know, for Clarence Thomas, his, his major jurisprudential philosophy, so the way that that he means to read law, is uh, is is in some ways a very conventional one. He he employs uh, what's referred to as the the original uh, understanding method uh, of reading law, which simply requires the justice or the, the judge in this case, to try to divine whatever the, the original understanding of the people who wrote the law, who passed the law, who were alive when the law was put into place, what was their understanding of what the law was supposed to do? Uh, and then the idea is that the judge acts as a kind of um, a relay transmitter of that original intention, updating it into modern times, or into contemporary times, and then trying to apply that understanding as the meaning of the law. Um, and as I say, this is a—it's a pretty conventional uh, jurisprudential theory. It's been around for a long time, um, but it, it's one that really, for Thomas, makes a lot of sense because it again points for him to the role of of fathers in. Uh, in determining what it is that the children and sons, or in this case, later generations of jurists, how it is that they ought to understand what law is about and what politics is about. And so for, for Thomas, um, when he thinks about the original understanding of a law or, you know, perhaps the framers of the constitution, if it's a constitutional case, He's really interpreting those through this other frame that is very important to him about the role that fathers should play in the lives of their children, especially the lives of of male children. And for for Thomas, the the point of of fathers is to is to give children the the stability and also to give them the or to instill in them the discipline that is needed to to make good choices later in life, to learn how to sacrifice, to learn how to be responsible people. And he sees an almost one-to-one convergence between that act of fatherhood and the the act of interpreting a legal text. Um, So when you read his most prominent Supreme Court opinions – he is consistently referring to the understandings and the intents of the framers. And his argument is that he has no choice but to enforce um, that understanding and that intent on the meaning of law. Because to do otherwise would be to be unfaithful to his role as a jurist. And it's not a stretch to suggest that to do otherwise than that would also to be unfaithful to one's parentage, unfaithful to the legacy of one's fathers. 
Now, your book uh, is is not about Donald Trump, uh, but it's very hard to to read the book, uh, have read the book, and to hear you talk without thinking about Trump. It's also very hard to think about the the what you've said in, in not in the context of larger questions about gender, but also race. Um, you you reference Trump briefly in the book, and and some of the comments that he made about former President Obama. And I wonder if maybe we can wrap up a little bit by by talking about some of those dimensions of the book, which are not necessarily the focus of the book, but but is the context of it, which is um, our current president, um, who is not always held up as a model of American conservatism, but, but does fit into this argument you're making about paternalism and how it relates to um, uh, issues of gender and also race. So, so maybe we can wrap up our conversation in in the present. Yeah, as as you say, uh, you know, nearly all of the book was written. In fact, all of the book was written um, prior to the the 2016 presidential election. Um, but I do think, uh, as you suggest, that there are clear through lines and and connections and tether points between uh, the analysis of the book and the you know, the contemporary political moment. And, um, you know, I do see Donald Trump as a pretty, a pretty accurate representative of this tradition of American, modern American conservatism, as I have outlined it as, as being really uh, committed and indebted to this vision of paternal authority um, as conjoined with a vision of, of, of individual rights, and um, we, you know, we consistently see in, in Donald Trump the same sorts of um, focus on character qualities of both of both of his uh, of his you know the people that he considers to be virtuous Americans, and especially of the people that he considers to be um, to be uh, pariahs uh, or villains. Um, they're the, it's the same sort of understanding of who counts as a virtuous citizen and who counts as a dangerous citizen that uh, that we really see threaded throughout the, the history of, of modern American conservatism. Um, you know, so for example, uh, you know, I mean, there was this, there was that moment uh, that I sometimes think back on in one of the presidential debates with Hillary Clinton, where. Um, the two candidates had been asked by an audience member to say something nice about each other. I don't know if you remember that, that exchange. And, uh, I think Hillary went first and she complimented, uh, Donald Trump's children and said that she thought that he must've done something useful. You know, I'm paraphrasing, um, in raising them because they had turned, they seemed to have turned out, uh, pretty well. And, you know, if, if you recall, Trump's response was quite, uh, he was, he was quite self-satisfied with that compliment. Um, and it was curious because all of the evidence suggests that, that Donald Trump was actually a, a, a completely non-present figure in his children's lives. Um, and, and by it, his own account, he was almost never around and left all of the child rearing to, to his various wives. But in that moment, you see this connection, um, you know, 
literalized on his face and in his body language of how important he thinks uh, a strong patriarchal figure is to the establishment um, and to the development eventually of, of virtuous American citizens. Yeah, and you know, rises to political fame in part by questioning President Obama's uh, parentage, uh, and and uh, and so in so many ways, so many other very interesting aspects of this um, very interesting book. Uh, the title again is "Raised Right: Fatherhood in American uh, Modern American Conservatism." The author, who you've been hearing from, is Jeffrey Dudas. The publisher is Stanford University Press, and available at their website. Jeff, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me on, Heath.